somebody asked me this week, this is interesting to me. Somebody asked me this week, do you play golf? Now, I'm in a crisis to answer that question. Because unlike my friend Wayne, who, by the way, Wayne only plays golf on days ending in Y. Okay? Think about that for a minute. You'll get it. Uh, so I know if, if, I, if somebody would ask Wayne if he were a golfer, he'd say, yeah, man, I play every day. But I play like twice a year. So probably the appropriate answer was not, yeah, I play golf, but the appropriate answer was probably something like, I own some clubs. I, I, I know some of the rules. I watch it on TV. But to call myself a golfer is a little bit of a stretch. Now, we got to figure this out because the question we're going to deal with today is, what does it mean to follow Christ? What's the cost? To be identified as a Christian, if I were taking a survey, okay, to be identified as a Christian usually requires only a claim to be Christian, uh, not many surveys will ask about uh, behaviors and practices and evidences of a Christian commitment. You know, things like prayer and Bible reading and, and worship attendance and all those kind of things are really ignored. They just ask you, are you a Christian or not? So many people are counted as Christians merely because they self-identify as such. And there is a term that has come up called the nominal Christian. The nominal Christian. I, I think we all know kind of what that means. I think it means, uh, by using the word nominal, I think it means I'm Christian in name only. Uh, some in my world believe the question, are you a Christian, is even invalid. That we should, that they believe we should identify, self-identify as, I am a believer, I am a Christ follower, Okay, it's more descriptive, uh, but for you and me uh, who've, who've you know been around the block a few times, this term of uh, I've been asked this, I've been I've claimed this since I was eight years old um, to be a Christian. But what does that mean? We're going to kind of deal with that today in two passages uh, uh, from scriptures. Now, Mark's gospel begins with John the Baptist preaching. He doesn't do. Um, uh, Mark is pretty interested in getting the story out pretty quick. So he doesn't start with the birth narratives and all that that, that um, Matthew and Luke begin with. Um, Jesus, um, John the Baptist is preaching. Jesus appears in the storyline for his baptism pretty quickly. At that time, he's identified by a voice from heaven as God's kingly son, uh, after his triumph over the devil's test, it was still in chapter 1 of Mark, Jesus repeats John's message, really, of repentance uh, and announcing that God's promised reign is actually really near. He's going to talk a lot about the kingdom. It's central to his teaching. The idea here is the reestablishment of God's rule over all the creation, especially over you and me, over rebellious humanity. You remember in Matthew 6, he teaches it uh, really uh, between the lines in his model prayer when he uh, it leaves in there the words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he, he 
talks about this being a movement that will one day extend the rule of God, reaching complete fulfillment in heaven someday. And he calls the first of his disciples. Now, we've talked a little bit last week about the Gospel of Luke, which is where we'll go second. But again today, it, it's, we're going to pick the Luke story up, Luke's story of Jesus up, at a time when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He knew he was going to die there, and he'd warned his disciples of that, but they really didn't catch it. They really didn't understand. The crowds that joined him had high expectations, but their expectations were not exactly what he had in mind. So that's kind of where we're going to pick this up. Steve Blair, it's good to see you over there. We somehow made it without you last week. I'm not sure how. But would you... Would you please read, pick up Mark 1 and read 16 down through 20. Okay, now let me hand out a couple of three verses that I want us to read. Somebody go to um, Matthew 10 in a minute, read 2 through 4. He'll, he'll do that. John, you get that one? Okay, Cindy, I think I saw your hand. Would you mind to go to Jeremiah 16, 16? Jeremiah 16, 16. And then I got one other that in this section I want us to kind of drill down on. It's Luke 5, but verse 10 and 11. Thanks, Karen. Great. We'll get to hear you talk. That's good. All right, now, Jesus begins this public part of his ministry by, by calling uh, some professional fishermen. Now, Roger, would you consider yourself a professional fisherman? I forgot my hearing. Oh, I know you did. I know you did. He, he warned me that he forgot his hearing. Now, Julie, would he consider himself a professional fisherman? Not today. Not today, okay, all right. But he's as good as about anybody I know. All right. And really, that was part of his profession years ago. Okay. So this is a little different. But Jesus is going to call some professional fishermen. And they're not going to do what they do with a Zebco and a hook like Roger might. But they're going to do it with a net and a boat. Okay. And we'll deal with that a little bit here. Many of these... Um, professionally caught fish. I did some reading about this this week. This is interesting. Many of the fish that they caught, this is just gross, okay, were made into paste. They'd grind them into paste, pack them into jars, and they would ship that all over the Roman Empire. It was, it was kind of a modern, it, they say it was kind of tasty, although it sounds hideous to me, but it would be shipped all over the Roman Empire. Uh, that's it was highly professionally lucrative. Um, so when we think about it, we're going to look at at least four of Jesus' 12 disciples today who were called from a life as a professional fisherman. You didn't just kind of walk away from that. It was a big deal. And they had kind of guilds. They had, um, they had kind of professional 
uh, associations. We're going to see, for instance, um, uh, Peter and Andrew were in business, but they were, but they were also uh, they were also in business with the Zebedee boys, you know, which um, who were they were kind of all working together in some ways, even though it was two different families. May have been more families than that. You didn't just walk away from a life as a professional fisherman. It was um, very uh, lucrative. It was a reliable source of income that was kind of rare in their day. And uh, so we see the call of two brothers. It's interesting that when we see the lists of the disciples, Simon, Peter, is almost always, probably always listed first. Now, let's read. John, I think I, I sent you to uh, uh, Matthew 10. Um, you mind read verse 2, 3, and 4? It's going to give us a list. there's the list every list not every list you'll read Peter's first okay so here's a, another kind of uh, view of his calling and and he and his brother Andrew are among the first now let's go on to verse 17 Jesus invites these two brothers okay he invites them to follow him and uh, the invitation is a kind of, couple, of, couple of words that I will use, the, the B words that I will use. It was blunt and kind of brief. Follow me. Follow me. Um, blunt and a little bit brief. What is he asking them to do in this brief invitation? Now, uh, one of the things I think is all important that we catch is that the main thing that he's interested in he doesn't say to them, Peter, um, about 20 years from now, you're going to end up on a cross like I did, like I will have. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, you're going to leave home and, and um, really never return. You won't be fishing. Anyway. He says some of that. But he just simply, the invitation is, follow me. I'm not sure in our day if we catch that, that this isn't simple. In fact, it's, it's pretty sophisticated. But it's simple in the sense of the request. Why don't you just follow me? I don't have to figure out, boy, am I glad, Rhonda, that I didn't have to figure out what was going to happen 20 years after I said, okay, lead on, man. I'll, I'll wherever you I, I don't want to do life without you. So wherever you want to go, I'm going. But Paul, I didn't know what that meant 20 years down the road or 40 years down the road. And now it's been 42. When I really said yes to that. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When Rhonda said yes to me, she didn't know what she was getting into either. <laughs> you mean we're going to do that and that? I don't know. Okay. He just says... Follow me. The second thing he says is, I want you to follow me, 
And I want you to fish for people. Now remember, in context, they were working, they were fishing, they were throwing mending nets, bringing the boats in to shore, that kind of stuff. I want you to, you're going to follow me, and we're going to, together, we're going, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. Now, there's an interesting, I, I had never read this reference that I can, well, I'm sure I've read it sometime, but I didn't make the connection. Cindy, would you read uh, Jeremiah 16, 16? talks about this fishing deal. Okay, so this isn't just a reference to field and stream. This isn't just um, a, a, a reference to uh, um, guns and ammo magazine. This is, this is about this idea where Jeremiah is predicting that, that God will incorporate, he will um, involve men and women who will gather others. So don't think of, again, don't think of Roger throwing a, throwing a line with a hook on it. Think of casting a net and gathering God's people from all over the world, all kinds of people. That's kind of the idea. You're going to help me, and together we're going to gather people. We're going to gather the scattered. There's a kind of an oblique reference to that here in their call. Now look at verse 18. So he gives this kind of blunt and brief invitation. Follow me. We're going to fish. Verse 18. It says they at once follow him. Now I want you to catch this because I, even though it says here that they followed him at once, I don't think it was sudden. I think they've contemplated it for a while. Now what you need to know is all four of the guys that we're going to talk about today were followers of John before Jesus came on the scene. So they've already heard, repent. They've kind of done that, but they've still been working at their earthly work when Jesus says, and by the way, it was a big deal to have a rabbi say to you, uh, you want to be part of my group? Yeah, you want to be part of my team? After, after, not long after, not long after. If you put it in chronology, it's not long after. So that has happened. He's been tempted in the, in the desert, all that stuff. So John is still active, but John is deferring to Jesus. And these are some of John's disciples to start with. So they've contemplated, what if he asked me to follow him? I believe. And so they left their nets and they follow. Uh, and their lives will never be the same. I, I, um, um, I, I begin to think about this kind of intently this week. Their lives won't be less. There'll be more. They're going to be asked to put the nets up. They're going to be asked to do some things that are very different from what they're used to. But they're not going to lose 
they're going to gain. As a child star of the sitcom Growing Pains, Kirk Cameron eventually rejected atheism. He turned to Christ while he was still working in Hollywood. Kirk would uh, ask that lines be removed from the script of this very popular TV show that went against his faith. Um, he's been, his more recent roles have been in faith-based films. I, I, I think of uh, uh, some of the same kind of decisions that Jim Caviezel made um, years ago, even prior to, to uh, playing the Lord in um, The Passion of the Christ. Those who become followers of Jesus may struggle with conflicts between the demands of a career and the demands of a savior, Many will find ways to survive and even thrive in that career after becoming a Christian. Um, some, like Kirk Cameron, is an example of a Hollywood star who kind of left some of that in order to follow Jesus because he didn't feel like he could do it quite the same. Okay? So, here's, here's a couple of guys their lives will not be less. They're going to be a lot more. But they're going to follow and they're going to change their way of life. Now look at verse 19 and 20. Now the Zebedee brothers are called. Okay. Um, they're always going to be, these two guys are always going to be in the top third of the list of 12. Um, I think Luke 5 gives us some clarity here. Karen, you got verse 10 and 11, Luke 10, 5. Okay, what you got to catch here? You didn't see this distinction quite the same with Peter and Andrew. James and John are in business with Dad. Zebedee. Um, they're in business with their dad. It's a family business. Jesus invites them to follow. They park the boats. They hand the line to Father Zebedee, Dad, we got to pursue a different calling. Uh, this is your boat anyway. Isn't it interesting that for who knows how long, for months, they've been following John and working. Now, they're going to become full-time, 100% full-time fishermen for Jesus. And they leave, have, but in order to do so, they have to leave behind a family business to do that. I wonder, you know, we don't get the detail here. What was that conversation like? What do you mean you're leaving the business? Dude, we got stuff to do. I can't do this without you. Now, he had, uh, uh, according to some of the, the context in Luke 5 and other places, there were other men, hired hands, that were working with them. This is kind of a big deal. But, um, um, uh, um, the two boys were to be the heirs of this thing. They were to take it on when Zebedee wanted to lay down. What do you mean? I don't, I, I'm kind of near retirement here. What do you mean, guys? You can't leave now. I don't know what that conversation was like. I just know how it is in other family businesses, having grown up in one. 
By the way, just I'll be really crystal clear. Skip can attest to this. I would have never made it as a plumber. I did plumbing from the neck down, okay? Didn't ever get it. Wasn't good at it. Still not good at it, am I, pal? Nope. Brad can do it. Skip can do it. Nope, I can't. Um, and evidently, you don't do very well at it either. Had to hire a guy this weekend, okay? So uh, it's a different deal. It didn't bother my dad at all that I didn't go into the family business because he knew I stunk at it to start with. He was glad I did something to use my brain instead of my brawn because I wasn't very good at all that. So, but wouldn't, in, wouldn't it have been, in, excuse me, interesting to hear this conversation? Now, we're going to fast forward three years. Go to Luke 14. Got to fast forward three years or so. They've been following Jesus for three years, along with the other eight. Jesus is now going to Jerusalem, and he will tell them for the last time. What do you mean the last time? Yep, I'm going for the last time. He tells them a lot about this, and they just don't quite catch it. Now, uh, before we read this, and we'll start at verse 25. John, I'm going to have you read that if you don't mind. 25 down to 33 in a minute. The crowds have grown. You can go ahead and put that in your blank here. As, as he reads here, be thinking about, why do you think the crowds have grown? Lots of people following by three years later. Okay, John, do you mind to read from Luke 14, uh, verse 25 down to 33? Okay, ask the question. The crowds have grown to this point. Why? His teaching was like nobody else's. So we know that was part of it. But there were lots of miracles too. Uh, if some, if, if um, um, uh, Jesus brought my little girl back to life from the dead, I think I'd follow him, right? Um, there were more than just the 12 following. There were, there were three, Crowds of people following. There were, there were you know, demons being cast out. That there was just a couple of chapters before what we're reading here. There was the feeding of the 5,000. Well, this is great. Yeah, we show up and we get a happy meal. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean it, uh, it, there was a lot going on that drew a crowd. Okay? Um, but it's all important that we catch this. Okay? That this idea is... Every time he did something fantastic, 
or, or delivered a, a marvelous teaching even. They would elbow each other and say, he's the king. The king is here. I, we don't have to wait for another one. The king is here. He's going to change everything. This will be like a thousand years ago when David put this nation on the map. That wasn't all what he intended to do. And so, in places like Luke 14 here where we began, where John began to read, he addresses the nature of his kingdom. And it begins so in the next verse, in verse 26. It's very, very important that you and I catch the context of the, the next couple of verses to follow. He's going to say, uh, as he begins this, he's going to say, if anyone comes after me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yep, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. They would have groaned. He uses a really, really strong word to describe the importance of following him, following him the word hate. And he goes after here the most sacred of relationships, and rightly so. When I think of my life, I think of the relationships that Jesus describes here. Father and mother, children, wife, sisters, brothers. That's my life, right? It's your life. And so he goes after that, or maybe allegiance to that, and... Um, um, uses this strong, strong word, hate. And by the way, don't think that uh, it's, it's, this is a mistake in translation, you know, none of that kind of stuff. The word is there because that's the word Jesus used and that's the word he chose to use. So I've got to come to terms. This is one of the hardest passages in the Bible. I've got to terms, come to terms with what he's saying about it. Now, let me tell you what I know and then I'll leave you to the rest of what I, what I don't fill in the blanks. Following Jesus does not lessen my love for my family. Following Jesus doesn't lessen my commitment and my involvement with and my love for my family. In fact, if anything, as a Christ follower, I'm a better lover of Rhonda. I'm a better dad to Heather and Jake. I'm even a better paw to Finney, okay? Because I follow Jesus. So I know it can't be that. So what is it? I believe what the Lord is going after here is a question of allegiance. If his love working through me makes me a better lover, a better dad, a better husband, a better brother, a better son, then it doesn't lessen my family commitment. It makes it better but his will be an unchallenged first place in my life. Maybe you don't know this story. I read it this week and I was intrigued by it. After being sworn in as vice president early in 2017, you read the stories, you heard the news reports on both sides of this uh, about Mike Pence's personal priorities that came under really intense scrutiny by the press um, those priorities were driven by his and his wife's professed commitment to Jesus. 
Uh, that commitment included certain rules they held in their marriage. You remember? And he got criticized on, in, in some news accounts and, and lauded in others. When a reporter asked his wife, Karen, about the couple's commitment to put each other first, she quickly corrected that misunderstanding. I've never read this. Although the Pences valued family above fame and power and politics, they were not first place in each other's lives. And she wanted to make that clear to this reporter. And she went on to tell of a time when they were dating, and she referred to Mike casually as her number one. Her husband-to-be warned she'd be disappointed if he were number one to her. We've had this talk a lot. The first place position had to go to someone who truly deserved it, the Lord Jesus. By the way, that, um, that dating relationship, that uh, engagement lasted, didn't it? It's still going strong. But they had to know, as you and I need to know, who's number one. And it got to be unrivaled the Lord. And so he makes this reference here, back to, to verse 27 in chapter 14. He makes this reference here after he kind of throws down this gauntlet. He makes this reference. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I begin to think about that. Remember, he's warned him there's a cross to come for him. They haven't really caught that. So when he talks about this, this has got to be a bit of, what do you mean a cross? What I, what I do believe is that part of the reference is just making sure that they understand and that you and I understand that following Jesus in, in this reference, taking up your cross and following him, it's not about inconvenience. I, I have probably interpreted it that way far too long. It's not about, okay, uh, well, this is a cross I got to bear, you know. When I got to make some decision I don't want to make or, you know, whatever. Got to give up, give up ice cream for Lent, okay. Well, this is a cross I got to bear. It's not about inconvenience. Let me read to you some of the details. Of this. Uh, I, I picked up a book that I had, had in the library that I just never read. Uh, Swindoll writes about Jesus. Um, let me give you just some of the details here. While the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, they transformed the technique into a macabre art. An exactor mortis was schooled in the finer points of death and led a team of soldiers called the Quaternion. Their sole task was to make Roman execution a terrifying spectacle. And their experience gave them ample opportunity to experience with different methods. Josephus indicated that the soldiers would nail their victims in different positions, either for their own amusement or out of rage or sadism or whimsy or hatred. Over time, they learned how to add various elements to the procedure and adjust them to achieve the desired effect. They could expertly control the amount of suffering, the cause of death, and even when the victim would die. After being beaten, the exactor mortis and the Quaternio stripped the prisoner naked and forced him to carry the implement of his own demise to the place of execution. They hung a sign called the titulus around his neck. The titulus was nothing more than a crude board inscribed with the prisoner's name in a list of his crimes. It would eventually be attached to the cross above his head to let everyone know why he hung there to die. 
having placed the burden of death on his back and the titulus around his neck, the quaternio formed a square around the victim and began a long, slow march through the main parts of the city, a death march called, in later years, the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Suffering. The purpose of the march was, of course, to enhance the public spectacle, which reinforced the warning of any other would-be criminals. While the United States still utilizes the death penalty, executions are carried out behind closed doors, away from the eyes of the general public. Not so under Rome. An execution was a deliberately public affair. Jesus would not have carried the entire cross, which would have weighed more than 250 pounds. Even a man who had not been scourged would have had trouble dragging, not to mention carrying that much weight. The cross beam, called the patibulum, was placed across the nape of the victim's neck and balanced along both shoulders. In the first century, Jerusalem looked like any, if it looked like anything like it does today, almost any route through the city would have been a claustrophobic nightmare. The tight winding alleys would have been packed with visitors for the Passover festival, and even the uneven pavement of hand-laid stones would have made his steps uncertain as he stumbled under the weight of the wood beam tied to his shoulders. If he had fallen with his arms tied to the cross beam, nothing would have kept his face from smashing into the stones. He knows he's going to experience carrying his cross, and he intentionally chooses this language to say, this is what it means to follow me. Carry your cross. It's not about inconvenience. I live to bear his cross. He goes on to, Jesus goes on back in 14 to talk about a building project that requires careful accounting. He talks about an unfinished project as an object of ridicule. Perhaps he's looking at an unfinished tower and thinking how stupid that looks. Why didn't they count the cost? And then he changes metaphors and he talks about an outnumbered king in a war. And he has only one choice. That's to surrender. The only way of peace is to surrender. Look at verse 33 again. We'll close. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I think that there's lots of language in through here where Jesus is saying that the hard choice is the only choice, no matter what it costs. (laughs) It would seem like defeat, but it really is the only way to victory, to just give up, just surrender. So here's my challenge to you for today. I wonder, in fact, I've, I've read both sides of this argument this week, whether or not you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. I have probably in my own teaching 20 years ago said, well, there are some who are followers and some who are disciples. There are some who are Christians and some who are disciples. It's disciples. I don't know, guys. After reading this, I wonder, just react to this a little bit in your own, in your own thoughts for this week. There is no distinction between being a Christian and being a disciple. If I'm going to wear the name, I need to make the hard decision that it is, but the only decision that it is. 
to be a Christ follower committed. The New Testament, I believe, knows no distinction between a believer and a follower, a Christian and a disciple. I don't think the New Testament presents a distinction there. What I, need to, what I need to remember is that there were perhaps 10,000 who followed him as long as he was feeding them bread and fish. But by the time he gathered them for the ascension in Acts 1, maybe there were 500. But they were all disciples, not just 12. And let me tell you, because they were, and because they fanned out all over the world and told not their story, but they told his story. Because they did that, you and I are sitting here today. They got it so that we could get it. Uh, when, I, when I look across this sea of faces, I see uh, Asian faces. I see uh, some with a little bit of a Middle Eastern look. I see Africans. I see Europeans, Native American. And I recognize that every one of those people groups was impacted by somebody who had sold out completely and told the story. Those were the disciples of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And that's the role we need to play in Oklahoma City. Now, I'll just say it again. No matter what it costs, will you go with me and follow him?